Welcome to the Wonder Women Tech Show, where we highlight, celebrate, and amplify women and Bill Pock voices. We humanize our role models and curate a culture of vulnerability and belonging. This is a show designed to innovate, empower, and ignite. I'm your host, Lisa Mae Brunson. Innovators, it's Lisa Mae Brunson with the Wonder Women Tech Show. And today's guest is part of the future generation of innovators who are blazing their own trail in STEM. Chinmayi Balusu is an undergraduate student pursuing neuroscience and medical humanities at Columbia University in New York City. She is the founder and chief executive officer of a global nonprofit organization known as Simply Neuroscience, and it works to expand interdisciplinary neuroscience and psychology education, outreach, and awareness for young students. She has a background in biomedicine and neurodegenerative diseases research and is currently contributing to cognitive neuroscience and traumatic brain injury-related clinical work. Chimayi is a passionate women in STEM advocate, public speaker, and youth science communicator. In her free time, she enjoys practicing martial arts, gardening, writing poetry, discovering new music, and exploring nature trails. Welcome to the show, Chimayi. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Well, thank you. I see that you grew up in Union City, California, which is so cool because I actually lived there when I moved from New Mexico, uh, when I left home at 18. Oh, no way. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a little, you know, the Tri-Cities area. So can you share what it was like for you uh, growing up and your family background? Absolutely. So actually, it's a little bit funny because I was born absolutely a Bay Area girl, but my family actually moved out of Alameda County when I was uh, about a six-month baby, I believe. So I grew up in Folsom, California, near Sacramento. I know it's famous for Johnny Cash and Folsom Prison Blues, Um, (laughs) but Folsom (laughs) and Intel headquarters, but Folsom was a really neat suburban town. Definitely still the same elements of the Bay Area there, but very relaxing in a way that I grew up very close to nature. It's something that is really um, important to my family. I think most of my family on my mom's side have a green thumb. So that definitely trickled down to me as well, thankfully. Um, And is really peaceful. I'm an only child. My parents are both engineers. I absolutely loved science from, I don't even know when that interest began. Um, and then when I moved to Columbia for college, my family also moved back to the Bay Area in the Tri-City area where we currently are today. So it's kind of like a full circle almost. It really does sound like a full circle. And, you know, I think it's so fascinating that, well, one, the green thumb thing, because look, I, I kill succulents. 
So I, <laughs> I don't even know why or how, because I used to have a green thumb and literally in the last like five years, everything, and I keep buying the plants. So I, I don't even understand why, but I love the plants, <laughs> but I can't, I can't make them stay. So I might have to hit you up after this podcast to, to ask you for some tips because I had this beautiful money tree, you know, those big, and it was big, beautiful, like six feet. And wow. for whatever reason, 90% of the leaves have like fallen off and the, the stems are dead. And I'm like, I, I don't know how to revive it. So I might have oh, to no. hit you up. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so your parents are both engineers. So clearly, like you were first exposed to like science and engineering very early on. But when did you realize like, yeah, this is what I want to do when I grow up? Oh, boy, I would say I really fell in love with science in elementary school itself. I loved especially how each year there was a different focus from earth science one year, it's more the physical sciences on one end and the life sciences. And I loved that all of these seemed so distinct and detached, yet at the end of the day, I could see how they were progressing from year to year. And I think at that point, I didn't quite maybe realize that I want to go into the biomedical sciences or healthcare, but I definitely love that aspect of hands-on inquiry and especially moving into middle school, I would say I was absolutely a fan of the science fair. And <laughs> so <laughs> every year I would present my project. It's actually quite interesting because my first few projects were in environmental science, which I currently in my work do not really have any much connection to, but it was a really interesting way to start out in a completely different avenue and then that sort of natural progression towards my interest in neuroscience, I would say, came from a love, and a love of anatomy. I remember in seventh grade science class with uh, Miss Lindsley that we had this whole anatomy unit and we were learning about the human body. And I was fascinated by how much there was going on without my knowledge of, oh, look at this blood <laughs> circulating. <laughs> look at these neurons passing by so quickly. Um, it just felt like an action movie was happening under my skin that I wanted to know about um, and kind of understand myself in the way. So that led into, I would say, high school and undergraduate explorations and beyond. But I would say I just loved that science could connect so many different aspects of history and creative writing and still be so technical and almost that feel of a journalist or an investigative individual at the end of the day was really something that stood out to me. I love that you said, like, there's this action movie going on underneath my skin. Like, I don't think I will ever not think about my body and its biochemistry the same again. Like, and it's so <laughs> true because, you know, our brain is operating automatically, you know, our lungs, like when we take a breath, like all of that is communicating to each other. And I never thought of it like... This, this action movie where you know, our, <laughs> our superheroes are like fighting the bad guys and like, um, you know, restoring our health and, and regenerating. So I, I, I love that. And I love that perspective because, you know, when we think of science, I don't think we actually like tie that into the fact that we are, our bodies are science. Like we are right. part of the whole process. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you volunteered at the Empire Ranch Alzheimer's Special Care Center in high school. And so I know you're passionate about volunteerism and giving back. So did did that experience um, inspire you to pursue neuroscience as a result? Or did it just influence your passion for the field even more? I think it was really influential in it humanized the textbooks and the science and the anatomy that I was learning about because it was definitely one thing for me to read about, oh, this is how Alzheimer's patients receive their diagnosis from a neurologist. And this is what the progression of dementia is like. But I think it's one completely different end to actually see those daily experiences from struggling to perhaps um, consume a meal independently without a caregiver or finding that you are progressively forgetting different details and hobbies from childhood that you'd love to share with others, but can't seem to recall that identity of yours anymore. So I think at the same time, there was this really, really neat duality of both seeing the empowerment of these individuals who are really seeking to connect back with their identity in these final stages of the disease. But on the other end, it is just so heartbreaking to connect with the family members and also understand what they're going through. And I would say I actually in high school and at one of the summer uh, vacation times was interning at a research institute where one of the aspects of my biomedical project was related to neurodegeneration and specifically looking at some of the more smaller localized molecules that contributed to Alzheimer's disease pathways. But I think it's so easy for scientists to get detached between this is what my research work is, and this is how many papers I'm publishing from my lab and my bench work, and then sometimes forget the faces at the end of the tunnel that this work may go on to impact. So I think absolutely, it definitely strengthened my love and my belief that neuroscience could go such a long way. And I think that was such a crucial period, being just a young biology student, deciding which career paths to go in, where I could see the real everyday impact of something that I was learning about. It was, I, I still think about it a lot. It was really instrumental. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's really a testament to like when you are exposed and have hands-on experience with the industry or, or, you know, your interest in, in, in what field you want to go in, you know, to have that lens where you see it in real time, you know, like the impact that you could make and the differences, uh, you know, in their lives based on any science or discoveries that you make in your future. How empowering right. is that mm -hmm. for you? It's amazing. I mean, it is such a, it's such a hidden lens into this world that I don't think we think about as innovators on a daily basis. And mm -hmm. especially at a young age, it just sets the tone for, I think, the rest of your career in ways that perhaps we don't even get to realize until we're maybe decades in the future. When we maybe when we're close to retiring, we'll look back and say, this is what subconsciously set the tone for what I wanted to achieve in my decades long career. And that's really amazing to think about personally. Oh, I love that to my... As a, as an undergraduate student pursuing neuroscience and medical humanities at Columbia University in New York City, 
What are some of the greatest challenges that you face and how do you overcome them? I would say off the top of my head, there is so much to explore and only so much time in the day. So I think my <laughs> I think my constant struggle is that there's so much. It's like drinking from the fire hydrant kind of an analogy where I want to tug myself in a million different directions, but at the end of the day, I don't want to burn myself out. So it definitely is sort of pick and choose and explore certain directions to the best of the ability. But I think the big challenge in terms of curricular wise is that I, I really do consider myself someone who sits in the middle of the gap or maybe the void even between the sciences and the humanities. Mm. Um, medical humanities, to sum it up, is looking at medicine and all of the very more hard, concrete biological sciences from a humanistic perspective of ethics and caregiving dynamics and philosophy and even the governmental more policy structures as well. So different perspectives and different narratives. And what happens though, is that this medical humanities program at the undergrad level is not technically a life sciences program. And it more so falls into the humanities, even though it's a really perfect mix of both. So with that, what I'm seeing is this sort of divide where if I classify myself as a STEM student, I can't necessarily access the full bandwidth of what is open in the medical humanities program and vice versa. If I am just a humanities student, then the, the need to kind of properly uh, kind of say, I am a STEM student as well is so much more difficult. It's almost like a, you pick one and you can only stick to that rather than I want to check off all of the different boxes. It's in a way it's quite disappointing because it relegates you to being one-dimensional rather than multidimensional as most innovators are these days. So I think that's a glaring gap that I see in education. And thankfully, mentorship along the way has been valuable in determining how I can bring all those aspects of my background and interests together. But it certainly is intimidating when you don't know how to navigate that system, I would say. You know, that's... I. I'm tingling because, you know, I often talk about bridging that gap between like technology and innovation and, and humanities, because in my mind, and, and, uh, and I'm just engineered this way, that's my, this, this is my action hero movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I feel like they should go hand in hand. I don't know how you can have one without the other, because at the end of the day, you're, you're working with humans, you're, you're healing humans, you're creating solutions for humans. So mm -hmm. you have to think holistically about this. And, um, I, I find it fascinating to learn this perspective from you that, you know, as a student who's interested in bridging that gap and seeing that there's a void, um, that, then presents itself to be challenging to navigate through is just, it's disheartening to listen to, but it's also inspiring for me knowing that there's people like you who are asking these questions and who are taking note notice and who will likely very much change the future of education. Absolutely. I think it's, it's really refreshing to see progress from both ends of the age spectrum, the education spectrum, the experience spectrum as well. Um, and I think it's really, and maybe it's also a great experience to have at a younger undergrad age as well, 
because it sets the tone for navigating those different avenues throughout you know, the next year's graduate school, beyond early career experiences in industry and whatnot. And I think the people that we meet along the way are truly can open up so many doors as well on either end, on, on any platform, in any aspect, in any field. So yeah. I, I wholeheartedly agree. You mentioned the importance of mentorship, so uh, which is so vital for, for, for all of us, really. We all need a mentor. So do you have one, and how has that impacted you as you navigate through your educational journey and beyond? I would say I've had the blessing that in most any research space that I've been, I have not just been blessed with the mentorship of one direct supervisor, but also the broader laboratory environments or uh, classroom environments. I would say different kinds of mentorship. There's always a range, right? There is people who will drive you through and guide you through. Here are the XYZs, the ABCs of producing this presentation. But then there's also the the individuals who will help you through more of the soft skills, the professional development and um, my parents grew up in India and received their education in India. And so as me personally being a first generation American, it while they definitely value, my parents value the extent of my educational pursuits, it's a completely different environment to navigate. So finding mentors, especially I think fellow women of color, um, I identify as South Asian and for the first time in my life, I realized after attending university that I had fellow South Asian mentors in the neuroscience avenue who could identify with not only my cultural upbringing, but also in in kind of carrying out that growth mindset and telling me, hey, this is what's important to keep in mind. Here's our, here are some really crucial tips and tricks for navigating these conversations and networking with people at conferences, let's say. So not just kind of the mentors who will say, okay, let's plan out your four-year journey, but those who will give you the all-rounded skills to go even beyond that four-year journey and fill in all the nooks and crannies. I think that was absolutely amazing to have that duality and mentorship as well there. I think it's so easy for, I think, young students in college to say, I have this mentor. I think I'm all set. But there's the saying that it takes a village to create someone's success. And I think in that same way, having mentors who come from different backgrounds and different identities and, and cultural upbringing is also really neat to see how their perspectives all build something that's that's really unique at the end of the day for their students. And it's really positive. I agree. It definitely does take a village. And I love that you said that because, you know, I think so many of us, especially as we aspire to do great things, we think we have to do it alone and go it alone and have all the answers. I'm one of them. So I'm going to carry that with me as well. You know, it takes a village to raise a Lisa May. <laughs> it takes a village <laughs> to raise a vision. Absolutely. Um, you're the founder and CEO, which is just like, I'm like, okay, she's 18. And she is the founder and CEO of a nonprofit organization. I just love this. Um, <laughs> it's called Simply Neuroscience, which works to expand interdisciplinary neuroscience and psychology education for young students. So what prompted you to start that? And can you tell us more about the organization and its mission? Sure thing. 
So in all honesty, I actually never intended for Simply Neuroscience, or we call it SN for short, to be a nonprofit organization. Uh, It was actually the name of my one-woman blog as I was entering college. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And as we know the power of social media goes, I had published it on a Wix website and my friends on social media, incoming college folks, they stumbled across the page and were like, Jinmai, this is awesome. I'm also a fellow brain enthusiast and a neuro nerd, and I'd love to chime in. So at the start, it was mostly us sharing our self-study resources. We were writing reflections on trends in neuroscience and whatnot. And what was amazing was as students came in, they not just were like, I want to hop on and share my own resources, but I want to bring my own ideas to the table. And we built out series like the Humans of Neuroscience series, where we showcase the not just the research portfolios or CVs of professionals in neuroscience, but their, their more interpersonal aspects of finding their interests and how they came to where they are today. And I think things like that built a more unique, multifaceted vision of the field of neuroscience for students like myself, because I think at the early level still, we're seeing a pretty large gap in the high school level, the middle school level of resources that are easily accessible to students. I think one of the biggest challenges, let's say, is jargon, because as, as we all know, science, with the more advanced it gets, the more intimidating it gets to outsiders. Mm-hmm. So definitely building and breaking down some bridges and building more accessible ones over the previous history was certainly one thing that we set out to do. Because I think our motivation at the end of the day was, as current students, I think we can contribute a more welcoming environment for fellow students than, let's say, waiting 20 years into the future and thinking, oh, maybe we'll figure it out one day of how to help bridge these gaps and connect these students with what they want to learn. Someone had to, of course, chime in. And I think my team of fellow volunteers and I, we all just decided to be that individual and step in and help build those bridges. You're incredible, Chinmayi. I'm so glad you showed up (laughs) in the world. (laughs) (laughs) So you advocate for embracing interdisciplinary connections in STEM. So what does that look like? I think in focusing on neuroscience, for me, that was saying science does not just exist in the lab. It does not just exist in science policy or in infographics and whatnot, but it is something that affects us on that daily basis that we were talking about earlier. Um, One thing that I sort of had an epiphany about when I was around 16, 17 starting coursework at college was that from the time that I was waking up to the time that I was going to sleep, whether I was choosing to procrastinate on homework or choosing to sleep eight hours versus four hours, all of that was affecting my brain and in turn it affected my health and the way that my relationships with the people around me were carrying out. And I think that realization that science was still a subconscious part of every aspect of my life. And then seeing, turning to the science world and thinking, well, this research innovation that's going on, this new Nobel Prize in, let's say, computational neuroscience and whatnot, that's not a direct translation to the daily lived experiences. But we can figure that out and we can visualize that by thinking about, let's say, 
what are uh, implications for neuroscience research and the new technologies that are being developed? There is a number of wearable technologies, right, that are focused on stress relief and tracking your brain waves throughout the day for wellness purposes. And I think so many ways that we can integrate um, our understanding and our love for figuring out the brain and figuring out ourselves in turn and artwork and in dance therapies for patients, or maybe even for our, for our elderly grandparents, family members, understanding how we can support their brain health as they're aging. There's just so many different ways that we subconsciously already connect neuroscience to our daily lives and every aspect of our studies, our work and families, relationships and whatnot. And it's really high time that we start emphasizing neuroscience is multidisciplinary, and we're not going to exclude anyone who wants to get involved and help connect the public with the science, but just because of their bachelor's degree in economics versus a bachelor's degree in psychology. So in that way, trying to create a community where anyone can be a brain enthusiast, as we like to call ourselves, regardless of what path they're setting on, what career they want to end up in. I think there's a spot for everyone. Yes, there is. <laughs> like <laughs> listening to you, I'm sold. But you know, um, <laughs> you know, for me, my passion and interest for neuroscience uh, is personal. I I actually ended up getting a, a, a TBI, a traumatic brain injury, in 2017 um, mm-hmm. when I fainted on an airplane actually to on our way to London to our wonder first ever wonder women tech London conference I had pushed myself too hard and I fainted and hit the back of my head on a chair on an airplane chair and I don't even when I came to I was on an oxygen machine uh, or oxygen yeah an oxygen tank and um, I had forgotten what happened. Like then I fell asleep, which you're not supposed to do, I guess. Like uh, American Airlines did not take care of me. <laughs> um, oh. Yeah. And so uh, when I woke up and I got off the plane, like I, I forgot that it happened. And I literally like tried to run a conference. And oh long story short, yeah, I, 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 I. Uh, I did not do okay. Like suddenly, like in the middle, I'm like standing on stage. I couldn't speak the the um, Expedia's uh, keynote speaker, which was one of our sponsors, and I couldn't say her name. And I and everything was blurry and double, you know, double vision. And I was just like sick to my stomach. And and long story short, I ended up having to leave my conference the first and only time ever in the middle of the conference and going to the hospital. And they diagnosed me with a concussion. And then I subsequently was one of the percentage of people that get um, concussive, uh, post-concussive syndrome. Mm-hmm. And so I've lived with that. I lived with that for years and not, you know, there was a time I didn't even know. I still actually, I mean, I'm not fully recovered, you know, the, and going to the doctor was the most frustrating thing because they're like, we don't know what to tell you. We don't know what recovery looks like. The brain is its own thing. Like we're still understanding it. And I think for me, like, you know, being a patient, and not having answers. It was the most frustrating thing I've ever experienced in my life. I mean, I, I actually like struggled 
with my own sense of humanity because I'm just like, I'm a different person. You know, I don't even know who I am anymore. It was, especially in those early months and early years, as I was really like learning just how to communicate. I mean, I would forget, like I would speak and then forget. And I mean, it changed my whole personality for a short time too. So, you know, seeing that people like you are on the front lines studying the brain and making sure that for future Lisa Mays who might have this kind of experience or this kind of injury can receive the support and care and treatment that they need to heal um, really warms my heart. I mean, I wish that I had more at my fingertips, you know, when I was going through the early stages and it, and in this time in history, it's shocking to me that we're not far further along. What do you, what are some of the upcoming innovations or science breakthroughs that you're excited about? I would say, I think in recent years, um, especially I'm a little bit biased because I'm involved in traumatic brain injury research. Um, But there has been such wonderful connections, I would say, thinking about how public health is not just diseases, as many people think about, but also so many different factors. We call them social determinants of health that influence the way that we view patients in clinical trials, for instance, or that patients receive access to care in different ways and preventative and post-injury or post-illness care. And in that way, I think that perspective of we're not just focusing on, let's say, patients or research in this moment of time, but over this longer time course has been very, very valuable for setting the stage of thinking about all of these previously unknown or perhaps not paid attention to as much uh, illnesses and biases and influences that are manifesting in these ways. And I think another avenue that's, it's kind of this triangle that I really, really appreciate is public health, the research and clinical sphere together with technologies that are up and coming. I think the pace of innovation in that way from gearing up academia to translate into more of the industry and more of the consumer facing end, connecting that back to usage in the clinical spaces in hospitals in treatment facilities and at the end of the day, allowing people to take care into their own hands. I think that perspective is what's absolutely going to change the, the plane of the field, maybe even more so than the developments themselves. I think just that change in perspective of how we approach this, this pace of innovation and the pace of how science is translating out of the publications is going to be the next big shift in the coming decades. And are you leading it? Chinmayi? I hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I will be. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I am so here for that. <laughs> We're going to take a break for today's Pioneering Women in STEAM segment. Today's Pioneering Woman is Betsy Anchor Johnson. Betsy Anchor Johnson was a plasma physicist who invented the gigacycle range signal generator. Born in 1927 in St. Louis, Missouri, Betsy was encouraged by her mother to pursue her studies. Betsy graduated from Wellesley College in 1949 and went on to study in Germany where she gained a PhD in physics. In 1956, 
she became a senior research physicist for Sylvania Electric Products and specialized in plasma, which she described as the fourth state of matter after liquids, solids, and gases. In 1960, she worked at Boeing Research Laboratories, where she made an important discovery, which led to her invention of a gigacycle range signal generator using semiconductor materials in magnetic and electric fields. She was the first woman presidential appointee in the U.S. Department of Commerce and is the fourth woman elected to the National Academy of Engineering. Thank you for your pioneering contributions, Betsy Anchor Johnson. Hello, innovators. We are back with Chinmayi talking about inspiring and empowering the next. Ah, blah, sorry. Hello, innovators. We are back with Chinmayi talking about inspiring and empowering the next generation of innovators, as well as realizing that we all have an action hero movie happening underneath our skin. So, you know, Chinmayi, I am super impressed by your presence, by your level of compassion in the in in your interest in science and the work that you do and i'm also just super impressed by by all that you've accomplished because like at the by the time you, you know you've hit 17 you're doing the things that many of us in our 40s are only hope to aspire to to have on our on our resume you're a three-time tedx speaker three time i was like wait what <laughs> um <laughs> So uh, I I just I mean it's it's one of my bucket lists so I like bravo um <laughs> but you've also spoken at over 100 events so how did you get into public speaking and and what do you talk about I would say it, well full honesty here as well I've actually never really taken public speaking formal training or classes um, oh, well, neither I have I. Sort of, so we have that yeah, in common. You yeah. don't have to, to be a public speaker. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. It, it, I feel like it comes so much more naturally to just learn along the way. Um, and especially, I think, just in terms of, I think the content comes from the heart, too. I speak a lot of times with younger students in high school, oftentimes, in a few high school classrooms. It's been especially nice with the pandemic forcing maybe a silver lining is that with everything being online things are just so much more accessible in terms of reaching students and folks connecting with folks who we can never contact in person so it's been really neat to connect with undergrads at universities oftentimes um, psychology clubs if they're up and coming oftentimes at hackathons I think that at those avenues it's been neat to discuss neurotechnology advancements and hopefully inspire some students to build neuroscience-inspired projects over those hackathon weekends. Other times, it's about this base of breaking down interdisciplinary science, uh, especially since one of the one of the arguments for interdisciplinary STEM is: Do we even consider STEM STEM the way it is these days? Um, should we sort of break apart those four letters into something that's much more broader? 
and when we refer to science um, and those kinds of discussions. So I would say it's a really nice mix of both these more structured lectures and walking students through, let's say, here's lessons that I've learned in just a short time of building Simply Neuroscience and hopefully some peer-to-peer -peer mentorship and connections in that way. Other times it's about hosting those more open fireside chats and discussions and helping students workshop their own ideas and hopefully they can build those out further in the next few years. Those are the two kind of avenues that I see. I mean, if I was a student, I would just absolutely hitch my wagon on yours. I would be like, that's my study <laughs> partner. That's like my peer mentor. I mean, you just, you just have it so together to my, so oh. do you ever feel imposter syndrome? And if so, how do you deal with it? For sure. For sure. I, I think especially being the younger person in the room by far in connecting with a lot of these larger neuroscience outreach efforts. Oftentimes, I think a lot of the professional societies, these folks are professors who run their own research labs. And I still shiver when I think these folks are so important and they have so much on their plate, but they're giving me their time. And I think that aspect of, am I the right person to be on this call right now? Still, it still comes to mind a lot. Um, but I think what keeps me going at the end of the day is that someone needs to someone needs to be that kind of representation i would say mm -hmm. for other students and say here's what we're looking for and i think you're the kind of person that can help us get to where we envision a welcoming community being so i think pivoting that sort of nervousness and apprehension into we can go farther if i can get over this conversation and get over my nerves and focus on the content. I know what I'm speaking about. These are drawing from my own experiences. And that kind of shifting to that bit of that mindset, I think has been helpful in getting over those butterflies a bit and definitely avoiding double checking and triple checking myself for every little mistake at, along the way. I think, I think sometimes it's, I, I definitely forget that I'm still a student and there's still so much that I you know, achieve with graduate school and beyond that I'm not even necessarily working at the moment. So taking this opportunity for making those mistakes right now and learning from them um, is easy for to forget, but I'm hoping to even emphasize that a lot more when we start up university again this fall, trying those experiences and maybe even ones that I have no clue what I'm doing, but hopefully I can figure them out along the way. Yeah, well, that's part of the process. You will, uh, a, a news flash, like you will make plenty more mistakes along the path. <laughs> like this is, you were just getting started. <laughs> but, a lot but, to come, absolutely. yeah, there's a lot to come. There's a lot to learn. And I'm so glad that you have an inquisitive mind because you'll be able to like navigate them better than some, I think. But, um, you know, I, I, in listening to, to your your vision and your interests and like the way that you view life you know it, it's so inspiring to me I, we we have some same views you know in terms of taking a holistic approach and thinking about humanity and bridging that gap with technology and innovation so what is your hope for the future and how do you feel your generation will impact it uh, my hope, I would say, is that we start dismantling a lot of labels and separations, especially in academia and 
research and these environments, because I think we're increasingly seeing folks who don't have, let's say, formal degrees or they don't have formal PhDs, but they're leading research efforts. They're leading these companies and startups and technologies that are doing much, much more than, let's say, the time invested on a degree. But that isn't, of course, education is education. But I think perhaps even the way that we view uh, folks who have a PhD versus folks who are working on research at the undergraduate level with just a high school diploma, or even students even even further along the pathway earlier on who are in high school, but they're you know starting out their science for projects. And with the right mentorship, they could push that further into something bigger and bigger and bigger. I think that attitude of this person is 14 years old, and I'm going to trust the 40-year-old to do something much, much more with this funding we're investing in them. Um, helping people gain the skills to reach the same level, regardless of their age or the kind of educational background they come from um, or the kind of internship experiences that they've had along the way. I think those are really important. That's what I definitely envision as hopefully the positive direction that we're going to move in further and further. Yeah, I, I love that. It's definitely... I would say an exciting time for seeing the world shift and change and our, you know, younger generations that are going to carry the torch that we're passing on. So you practice martial arts and are currently a third degree black belt in Taekwondo. So you can... Mm -hmm. Beat me up. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) In what ways has this discipline and practice integrated itself in the way you show up in the world? I think first and foremost, just empathy. I I firmly remember our instructors, our senior instructors, we call them master. Uh, So when the instructors, the masters were telling us principles such as when you walk into the dojang, the studio, you don't necessarily know what's going out there for the rest of your fellow classmates, the rest of your trainees. And that kind of attitude of taking this peaceful, serene time in the world, just focus on your trainees and the connection, the bond that you have between your team and working toward these goals can really set the tone um, for what's going on. But that doesn't mean that you you forget about the rest of the world and that's on. I think acknowledging that folks have folks have hard times. I mean, we're still in a pandemic, right? And that kind of a that kind of a grace for understanding that there's so much going on, but we can still take time, even if it's one minute, even if it's 30 minutes a day, to reflect and think about what keeps us going together rather than separately. Uh, I think a lot of folks think of martial arts as a very individualized, individual geared sport, but it really is this team bonding that goes on as well. Uh, some of my friends that I made from the dojang, the studio, um, are now family friends and other Hill family. <laughs> Our parents connect as well. We connect when we even leave for school and whatnot. So that's definitely something that sticks with me and just the, the sort of grace of going through life in this ever-flowing manner is, I think, a beautiful, beautiful aspect of martial arts, Taekwondo. Um, it's, it's the perfect blend of the sports and the athletics and the physical endurance, but also the, the mental fortitude, I would say. Yeah. You know, I have always been intimidated by martial arts personally, because <laughs> it's like, you know, I, I don't think I have a lot of 
discipline. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm always inspired by people who take on that art and, and discipline. And, and I, I do learn from people like how it's enriched their lives and allowed them to be further connected to people. So it's not about beating people up. It's, it's actually, (laughs) I, I was joking, but it's actually, you know, so much, um, discipline and practice and art in, in the skill. Absolutely. So at Wonder Women Tech, we believe that vulnerability is a strength. And, you know, I have, I'm, I'm super vulnerable. I love sharing. I love to allow people to kind of sit in my world a little bit and, and feel what I feel. You talk about empathy, which is beautiful. So I'd love you to share something with us that you've never shared with anyone else before. Ooh. Oh, I would say, hmm. I think I sometimes fear that I am not the best leader that I can be, or I'm not the best teammate that I can be. Um, I think simply neuroscience is such a big part of my life. And along that way, I mean, as a 16-year-old, I was starting this initiative. I certainly did not know much about, let's say, setting up nonprofits or thinking about long-term growth and structure and how we can better reach people and all these different aspects. And now I think, I mean, this team is huge. We're, We're doing, making big moves at the end of the day. But I sometimes wonder, am I even the right person? It's kind of this touch of imposter syndrome and this fear of um, that, I'm not the best person. And I think that even trickles down to classes sometimes per se. It's like, what do I, what did I do to deserve being here? Uh, these people are amazing. These professors are amazing. So mm. I think definitely having the, I think I see in a lot of teamwork dynamics, having the vulnerability to say, I actually have no clue what I'm doing right now. Can you please help me? <laughs> is um, something that is at times difficult because I grew up definitely being that kind of an independent independent student, that independent go-getter. My mom definitely raised me to to be self-sufficient and self-reliant and believe in myself and what I could do. But I think just that aspect of seeking help, perhaps, um, understanding that's not a weakness, but that's a strength, is something that I think about and something that I hope to adopt um, as I grow older as well. Um, Kind of the aspect of the chinks in your armor don't have to be the chinks in your armor. They can be the strong points. I appreciate you sharing that. And all of us can identify. All of us can identify. And and the fact that you're already getting in these lessons at such a a beautiful age. Um, You know, I started my nonprofit in my 30s and I didn't know what the heck I was doing either. And so like, you know, there's you're going to have a learning curve and I think having that grace to to recognize that if you're in the room, you're already qualified. If you're on the call, you're already the best person for the job because you raised your hand and you showed up and you're doing it. And I think a lot of us don't give ourselves that credit that the fact that you're doing it is the credibility. Mhm. Well, you're still carving your path in the road as part of the future generation of innovators. And so far on your journey, looking at all you've accomplished and where you're going, would you take the easy road or the road less traveled and why? 
certainly the road less traveled. Um, I think there's so much spontaneity to life that I fall in love with on a daily basis. Maybe that's from my upbringing in California. We loved, there's just so much to do around here, right? But I see that reflected in nature. I see that just in the connections with my family in terms of spontaneity is just beautiful. I think it adds adds so much color and so much love to life that the daily, let's say nine to five or the daily we go to work and that's it at the end of the day, um, does not really allow space for. So I'm all for those kind of non-traditional path less traveled routes. Um, and I'm always the type of person who has open arms to things that never thought possible, but come your way, pick them up and let's see where they go. Chinmay, you are just so full of beauty and wisdom and I am here for it. I just, I want to follow your journey. I want to see where you take us because you are absolutely the next stage for innovation and innovators. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today and sharing your, your wisdom and grace. Thank you so much. This was a really wonderful space for reflecting on my own thoughts as well. So I really appreciate that. Well, that's what we're here for. That's why we have this show. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for being here, innovators. Make sure you give us a like and share the podcast with your network. We'll see you next week when we take on the world one more time.